Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn and has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You know, I feel like. We, we live in a society right now where if you're not using your platform to teach, to educate, to give people something that has like a greater intention, I think you're, you're wasting your platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. As always, I'm Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Saveri. On the program today, misinformation, disinformation, we're going to break it all down. The recent Wall Street Journal article, a scathing expose on Facebook and their algorithm changes back in 2018. Nick and I are going to discuss that. Plus, later on in the program, Ron Filipkowski is going to be joining us. He is a former federal and state prosecutor from the state of Florida, excuse me. And Ron resigned in 2020 over, you know, Governor DeSantis's response to COVID-19 and the Rebecca Jones issue that happened down there with manipulation of data. Now he's recently started a little uh, three-man operation, let's call it, uh, monitoring right-wing media, speaking of misinformation and disinformation. So he monitors all of that over on twitter and he posts a lot of these uh, clips so we're gonna get into all of that with ron later on the program before i say hello to the fantastic nick saveri before i say hello to him another podcast a sports podcast that you will love hosted by yours true check wow. the stats check the stats is available wherever you get your podcast join me each week as i sit down with players coaches scouts trainers and broadcasters alike we discuss sports stats as part of their everyday profession and also break down some of the sports that they work in. We've had a bunch of great episodes already. Former Jets and Dolphins quarterback Ray Lucas was on the program, former USC quarterback Max Brown. Uh, we've got a couple PGA Tour players coming up in the coming weeks. We had uh, Quincy Avery, who trains all of the top quarterbacks in the National Football League, Trey Lance, uh, Deshaun Watson, Jalen Hurts. 
So check out those episodes available wherever you get your podcast or if you want on theanalyst.com. Nick, hit me with that joke about me moonlighting as, as a podcast host on my own. Man, this this is just paltry right here. And, you, and you're not even he's straight up out with it. It's like you got a relationship with someone and then they turn around and you're like, hey, man, I, I've upgraded. And they're not even like hiding it. You're like, you know, I mean, he's put the way the podcast wedding ring, like it's it's all in my face right now. And in real time, folks are experiencing it. But but jokes aside, though, uh, if you have not listened to the show, I highly recommend it. Um, sports talk in general is a hot take machine. And, and typically in the conversation of statistics, it's often usually broken down to what we consider is like math geeks and all the whatever slant you want to have for people who look like me just to be blunt about it. Um, this show is the opposite of it. It's an intelligent conversation on the role that statistics plays in the most casual of conversations. You know, I've got a chance to catch all the episodes, particularly my, the Ray Lucas episode. I especially loved, especially that take on Aaron Rodgers. Um, Mike, you're doing awesome work, man. The brand is strong and I'm, I'm really happy for you, dude. Well, I appreciate that. Leon Media Group is growing. Check out that podcast. Like I said, theanalyst.com or wherever you get your podcast. Nick, how is everything aside from me moonlighting uh, away from you? What, how is everything else over there in, in Eastern Pennsylvania? It's not even moonlight away from me. Like you just, you, you, got, you got a big old side piece. <laughs> but I don't feel like the love here is any less. Clearly not. Now, um, we're, we're good though. We're good. We're good in Eastern. It's funny, man. You know, weather, weather's the thing. I am finding myself plenty of times now getting rainfall, te- different temperatures here. And I'll just talk to my, you know, folks and my parents in North Jersey, you know, my colleagues in New York City. And I'll say, like, this is what I'm seeing right now. And they're like, oh, it must be coming up to, by us. I'm like, this is wild, you know? And again, I will save you all on my whole climate change spiel because it is hitting me like a ton of bricks now how serious <laughs> this is becoming now. But, um, but things are good though. Pennsylvania is great. Easton's awesome. You know, kids still thriving in first grade. So nothing to complain about here, man. How are you? All is well, man. I mean, listen, uh, by the way, I want to address something because you're right. The love here is strong with the guests that we have coming up in the coming weeks. We, we've got some great topics and great guests, but all is well here, you know, just waiting on, on the birth of my, my second princess that will be joining the family soon. Uh, in November. So more on that to come in the coming months. Let's shift over to our main topic for today before we bring out our guest, Ron Filipikowski. Like I mentioned, uh, misinformation, disinformation. Recently, the Wall Street Journal released you know, this article that I mentioned about Facebook. And Facebook has responded. It's playing a little defense after the skating report on the company's failure to protect users. Take a listen to this summation of what the report found. The Wall Street Journal reports Facebook's newsfeed algorithm was overhauled in 2018 to boost, quote, meaningful social interactions. That is, according to documents reviewed by the newspaper, the journal writes staffers warned the change was having the opposite effect. It was making Facebook's platform an angrier place. Company researchers discovered that publishers and political parties were reorienting their posts toward outrage and sensationalism. That tactic produced high levels of comments and reactions that translated into success on Facebook. The journal continues, data scientists worked on a number of potential changes to curb the tendency of the overhauled algorithm to reward outrage and lies. But Mr. Zuckerberg resisted some of the proposed fixes, 
the documents show, because he was worried they might hurt the company's other objective, making users engage more with Facebook. All right. So you just heard there, uh, you know, about this report, and we're going to get into it in a sec, because obviously I work in the tech space right now. Nick works in education. Uh, so we're going to I'm going to break down a little bit of what Facebook is doing from a technical perspective. But here's the main points, right? The Wall Street Journal's investigation, it really showed that Facebook was ignoring its own employees' findings. And it really demonstrated how it, it, come, it comes up short when the company has made these changes. Now, Facebook has accused the Wall Street Journal of mischaracterizing its efforts and how it uses research. While Facebook is often forced to defend itself against gating criticism, investors have yet to punish the company. Facebook is valued at $1 trillion. If this, was, if this was, uh, whatchamacallit, uh, Dr. Evo, he said $1 trillion. But in all seriousness, um, I work in the tech space. We've done an episode about you know media and news judgment. Everybody has seen the great Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma, and how former people that worked at Facebook that built the like button. Um, the way technology works, folks, okay? And this is why I laugh sometimes at the people that won't get vaccinated that say there's a microchip being implanted or the people that just always go all in on conspiracy theories. They half-ass it because if you're going to go all, you need to go all in because you shouldn't have social media. You shouldn't have a cell phone. Those have UIDs, which are unique identifiers, right? So I can target you for ads. If I have an app, you ever hear, you ever see a button that says ask or allow app to track? That means I can track Any, anywhere that you go. If you go, when I worked at previous places, if you worked somewhere and I worked at like a, let's say a ticket agency, I can retarget you. So the ads that you see when you're reading an article that pop up, those are all served from an ad server because it's based on your IP. It's based on your search history. It's based on a bunch of different factors. But I, I laugh at people that don't go all in on conspiracy theories and they and they're and they're with a straight face will have an iPad, an Apple Watch, uh, social media, paying with credit cards. Like you need to go all in. So aside from that, I want to get into uh, the overall uh, findings from from this this Facebook report by the Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm not shocked by a lot of it because. Anytime that the company is not aligned internally, right, you're going to see something like this. Zuckerberg saw a spike of engagement and usage. We've talked about this all the time, Nick. When we post something on social media, what are we trying to get? An X percentage of engagement. Engagement means people will roll over, they engage with the clip, maybe they hit the link in the bio because they've been told to, and then they come to our you know, a Linktree app uh, or Linktree uh, site, excuse me, and they're able to listen to the podcast across audio podcast platforms or watch the video clips. You're looking for an X percent of engagement. Zuckerberg knows if I get an X percent of engagement, right? Multiply that by Facebook now, right? I can sell advertisers, right? So he knows, the company knows that's money. That's money in the pocket, right? Internally though, as a, as a former product manager, as somebody who has built applications that are still out there in the marketplace, you know you do user research before you put something out there, right? And you also know what's good and what's bad. And it looks like from this report, a lot of people internally have mentioned, and you've seen Facebook has posted, if you have Indeed or LinkedIn, a lot of job openings across all of their different office locations, although now they're letting people work remote. Um, they're hiring for a lot of PMs, engineering leads, and it's why they've had a lot of turnover. A lot of people have left because this report has found that people were not being listened to. And that's a huge problem here. The people that built 
that have the knowledge base of knowing these algorithms, knowing what different UI UX, that means user, user interface, user improvements, they know how to fix that. And it was falling on deaf ears as it matriculated up the pipeline and eventually to Zuckerberg. Nick, you work in education. I want you, and, and you've always been very leery of social media. You've mentioned that before. So I want you to explain to us when you saw this report from the Wall Street Journal and you learned some of this, and some of it was also scathing in terms of like uh, young girls as well. There's a, there's a finding from in there that it made a lot of young girls at least under the age of 13, at least uh, more suicidal. I forget what the actual report mentioned, but um, it, was, it was very, I mean, for you and I, we both have good little girls, like it, it's a very scathing report. So what, what were some of the, your early takes when you, when you read this report? Not surprised at all. Um, I think Facebook has, we're seeing an identity crisis in Facebook being played out in real time. Um, you know, there's a portion of this that is a matter of ethics. You know, the, the people on the back end that are seeing the beast for what it is, that the fact that we are targeting, <clears throat> we recognize the opportunity for boosted engagement by putting emphasis in spaces that maybe we're not excited about which is everything from my pillow guy and all this crazy stuff. Um, and then on the other side, you have someone like Zuckerberg, you know, who sets the mission of the company, which is to keep people connected. Zuckerberg's attitude is that if people are connecting more with his app, first and foremost, but more with one another through the app, all the better. And I think there's two things there. One is that's extremely profitable in terms of ad sales, but at the same time, Zuckerberg's entire vision was having a place that people can feel connected. Um, this, by the way, is what happens when you let college dropouts become like multimillionaires, basically, and still set the vision for a company. Um, Zuckerberg's not educated enough in this and that the ethics don't mean anything to him. And I don't know if it's necessarily because at this point, his business stance on this is that we are, you know, we're publicly traded. We are, you just said a moment ago, like worth a trillion dollars. Like, why are we going to stop the money from coming in? And I get it from a business standpoint. I totally understand it. But if you're telling me that people on the inside, you know, people, the engineers, people who look at this and recognize it, that there's a, a practice, a targeted practice of directing content to people that is harmful, that is false. And it's simply to draw people in. There's two reactions you have to have here. And I'll speak about this from an educational standpoint. One, we have to make sure that we are actually educating students about this. Um, one thing I've always noticed in in education is that we don't emphasize digital literacy enough. We don't talk nearly about what does it mean to actually vet sources. Understanding what Facebook really is, the same place that we started off with, which showing pictures of your family, of your you know, pets, what have you, suddenly has sprung into a place where people just throw out articles that they don't, that they don't often read beyond the headline. Um, and that's not actually research. We hear this often. You're right. Well, I've read some articles. I'm sharing it. Bullshit. You read one thing that was slanted and you shared it to other people within your circle. That's not research. You know, in a previous episode, we had Dr. Amy Scallon from Temple University. You know, the article that she wrote, she co-authored, has 58 pieces of literature backing it. That's actual research. Your dumbass on Facebook just, you know, sharing or retweeting whatever nonsense you saw from one piece. It's not, it's not research. That's just you being intellectually lazy and wanting to produce an echo chamber. Hence the title of this show, of this right. episode. Um, so I'm not surprised at all. What is fascinating to me is, do the engineers not understand the company mission then? 
Like <laughs> that's what I'm kind of wondering. Like, and I think they did, and I think that's why they left is they recognize what the game really is, and that's what Zucker Zuckerberg's been playing. But he's never he's never walk, walk, walked away from what Facebook truly is, and there's a reason why I don't have it on my phone anymore. I use the Messenger piece just as a essentially as another chat tool with friends. But I haven't been on Facebook in months. I go off and on, most recently off, and it hasn't been on my device in probably seven, eight months. Um, mostly because I recognize this. You know, you just seeing the constant sharing of content that that doesn't feel vetted. And it's not why I would go to a source like that. So, Mike, right. when you say I'm leery of social media, it's for this reason. It's that these are these are unvetted sources just constantly being whipped about. And it stirs people into a frenzy and it forces people to start telling stories to themselves and to others that actually are not factually based. And suddenly we're just simply building a hotbed of emotion that is leading to action. One of those actions, most notably being February, uh, January, January 6th. 6th. Yeah. Listen, you know, I, I was just, as you were saying all that, I was laughing because you got all these concerned senators all of a sudden on Capitol Hill saying, we need to do something about Facebook. Yet a few months ago, they were saying, let us back on Facebook, let President Trump back on Facebook. Right. This is tyranny, right? Free speech, not realizing that's a private company and they have a terms of use policy. So like, which one is it? We want to get rid of these guys or we want people to come back on? So that uh, that aside, I don't even want to get into that. Look, as a, as like I mentioned, as a, as a guy who's worked in product over the last eight years, launching three different apps in sports and music, okay? You, uh, you want to get engagement. Engagement's number one, because when you get engagement in eyeballs, you can sell that against advertisers. You can monetize. Now you can monetize and that money helps you build better. You build better based on user research, right? You have a design team, you have engineers that build this out, then you test it, right? And then you release it, right? I've never worked in a product that unfortunately, uh, fortunately for me is really about like a Facebook or Instagram or Twitter or Snapchat, right? Where it's relying on a different set of users. Mine's have been around live sports, which users are already going to come to anyway, or live music, which people are going to come to anyway. But even in those examples, um, you're still doing the same track that these guys are doing at Facebook. The difference is, you know, you're doing what is liked and disliked from user research. Here, internally, they were saying, we know that this stuff could lead to harm, to actual harm of people misinterpreting this. I want to read you something here real quick from the, from the Wall Street Journal's investigation. So the Wall Street Journal investigation showed how Facebook has repeatedly failed to properly address crucial problems that were highlighted in internal studies conducted by the company's own employees. Like I just mentioned, right? Sometimes you do internal focus groups, right? Before you do external ones, you do internal ones of users that are within the company that maybe don't use Facebook a lot, that do use it. It's almost like a controlled experiment, right? So the company's own employees, uh, and it showed how the most divisive content surfaces in so many news feeds because of its high engagement. The reports come two, came two months after uh, President Joe Biden said Facebook is killing people with misinformation about COVID-19 and the vaccines. And after the company struggled to find a consistent message for dealing with false information about the 2020 election. So the problems that were highlighted by the journal, Nick, were consistent with what Facebook critics have been saying for a long time. The executives are consumed with revenue growth and engagement. One of the stories that was pretty impactful here was uh, CEO Mark Zuckerberg was given a recommendation by an employee about a change the company could make to reduce the algorithm boost given to harmful content that captured eyeballs and outsized attention. Like I mentioned, 
you know, something goes viral and it's, you know, it's slanted in one direction or not, or it's not even verified, but because of the engagement that it got, it would get boosted in the algorithm and appear on more people's feeds. Zuckerberg responded by telling the employee he'd reject the proposal if it materially impacted users' interactions with one another, according to this report. And then in a separate piece, the journal outlined how Facebook has ignored or brushed over mental health problems caused by Instagram, particularly for teenage girls. Facebook knew about the issues because the conclusions were drawn from its own research. Not only has the company failed to make the improvements, but now and I hope this doesn't go through, but it's planning a version of Instagram for kids under 13 years old. Um, before we bring out Ron, who's doing a great job and we transition to Ron, um, he's doing a great job on Twitter, you know, trying to not only curb and curate this, this spread of misinformation, disinformation by right-wing media, but uh, what are some of your, your thoughts about what I just read you there from the Wall Street Journal's report? You know, I, I said earlier that this was a matter of, um, you know, what Zuckerberg's vision is for the company. But I think the other pieces that you mentioned are are the other ones are even more frightening. Um, you know, when we talk about Instagram and we're talking about young women, you know, I'm I'm 42 years old. Uh, I'm old enough to be of the generation where I remember not having access to the internet to do research, which involved going to an actual physical library and a card catalog and all that stuff, and then waking up one day and having access to something called Prodigy. And I'm totally dating myself when I say these things, but I remember that when that happened. Again, I'm in my 40s. You know, you're talking now about a generation that is soaked in this, that doesn't understand how do you actually stay away from this or recognize the ability to like delete it or put it back on like someone like I'm able to because I, I recognize what these things truly are, good or bad. Um, you know, the fact that these different tools are able to have this kind of psychological effect on young people, if I say that in isolation, we should all have a conversation and ethically, if a company is doing that, and this, by the way, is going to sound an awful lot like the cigarettes conversation that's been had for many years. Um, if it provides that kind of an influence, is it really something that shouldn't be regulated? No, you, you make a great point. Um, listen, our guest for today, Ron Filipkowski, like I mentioned, speaking of misinformation and disinformation, Ron Filipkowski does a great job on Twitter monitoring with his team all of the right-wing media outlets and all of the uh, nonsensical things that have been posted across social media from anything from the my pillow guy mike lindell to michael flynn and he really him and his team do a great job curating this stuff to humiliate these folks and really point out the lunacy in some of this stuff so when we come back after the break we're going to talk to ron filipkowski about all the work that his team is doing why he left um, governor DeSantis's team back in December of 2020 uh, and the way the, the governor was handling COVID response. All of that with Ron after the break. Nick, today's episode of the pod is presented by HelloFresh. I, I love HelloFresh, by the way, um, because if you, Nick, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like you are stuck in a dinner rut? Hell yeah. We'll expand on that because hell yeah, I don't know what that means. Like, well, you, asked a, you asked a close question. <laughs> like, what'd you eat? What'd you eat for dinner today? Well, today, today was pizza day, man. We just, we actually See, just, you know, made some pizza around here, but yeah, no, we followed this rut all time. I've got two little ones. So you got to account for them. My mother-in-law right. lives with us and her tastes are sometimes a little different than Laura and I. So you got to think about things that are quick, things ready to go. And yeah. man, that's where HelloFresh comes in. I mean, that sounds like a dinner rut. Uh, you just uh, look with HelloFresh, you're going to get fresh pre-measured ingredients 
with mouth-watering seasonal recipes delivered right to your door. My wife and I tried HelloFresh up here in New York. We love it. Um, skip all those trips to the grocery store because in New York, you know, you got small refrigerators, you got small cabinet space. I can't go to the grocery store and keep all this stuff. So I got to rely on HelloFresh um, to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. Nick, you can now enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in 30 minutes or less, which gives you time to be late to hop onto this podcast and record with me like you always are. That's right. That's right. I'm calling you out in this. this, My man, airing out the laundry. See, and and what Mike doesn't know, though, is that Laura and I have gone through every meal service. We've done done them all. And HelloFresh has been by far our favorite one because to Mike's point, that prep time is real. 30 minutes, you're going to get some quality stuff on the table for your family. It's true. With over 25 recipes to choose from each week, there is something for everyone to enjoy. All the recipes are designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Go to the link right now in our show notes, whatever audio podcast platform you listen to us on, you're going to get $80 off, including free shipping on HelloFresh. That's amazing. That? Uh, 80, let me read it again. Uh, $80 off 80 bucks shipping on HelloFresh. And it's like a PS five game plus $10. <laughs> I mean, only, you know, that math. I don't, I literally don't know that math folks. If you can, if you can add up whatever PS four games equate to $80, PS five, my man was paying attention. Oh, exactly. <laughs> PS5. That's how, that's how bad I don't know it. HelloFresh. You can clip all that out. HelloFresh, um, $80 off, including free shipping head to the audio, audio podcast platform show notes right there. Click on the link. HelloFresh, the number one meal kit. All right. Joining us now, like I mentioned, he's a former federal and state prosecutor who does a great job monitoring all of this right wing media stuff that we talked about earlier. And that is Ron Filipkowski. Ron, Mike Leon, Nick Saveri. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast today. I truly appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. Ron, we're going to get into all the work that your team does, you know, monitoring some of this stuff and then the role that social media kind of plays in it, because there was a scathing Wall Street Journal report about Facebook and, and this and that. We'll get into that in a bit. But for people, our audience specifically, who may not be familiar with you and how you worked for Governor DeSantis, why don't you take our audience a little bit through your history when you resigned back in December, why you resigned, and then what you, know, what you guys are up to now? Well, I, w- I was a lifelong Republican. Um, you know, I, I worked on my first Republican campaigns in 1988. I was very active in the party um, all up until 2016. Um, I was elected to several different leadership positions within the party here. I was president of the largest Republican club on the West Coast of Florida, uh, general counsel of the Sarasota Republican Party, appointed by Rick Scott and DeSantis to uh, a constitutional office. So, so, yeah, just immersed in Republican politics basically until Donald Trump. You know, I, I was always anti-Trump for 30 years or so, you know, way before he got involved in politics. I didn't like the guy. And so that sort of started my separation or drifting away from the party like like a lot of other, you'd, I guess you'd say establishment Republicans, I'd say educated. How would you explain so to your point about Trump? So it sounds like you're saying that, Ron, like Trump was the tipping point for you, the beginnings of sort of a schism between you and the party. Is that safe to say? Yes and no. In other words, like the the, the fact that Trump got the nomination was very disappointing to me. But I, I guess I made excuses for the members of my party who supported him. 
thinking that they just got conned by a, a great con man and they just got sold a bill of goods that they bought and um, he packaged it well, he conned them well, you know, and so I just felt like they'll figure it out in a couple years, they'll get rid of the sky and everything will go back to normal. But uh, what I, what really caused me to leave was not so much Donald Trump, it was them. It was the fact that not only did they love it, they knew exactly what they were getting with him and they wanted more of it. And uh, so that really disillusioned me. It, it, I think it's caused all of us sort of never Trumpers uh, to question, you know, were we blind all of those years? Did we just not see what our party really was about? Was it under the surface always there and we just didn't see it? Or were we, were we willfully blind? You know, I ask myself that all the time now. Um, but, uh, and, I, and I'll say this, Trump brought a lot of new people into the party that had not been there before, um, who had never really voted before. And, um, and I think that that has changed the party as well. If you were to summarize, Ron, the, the difference with what we would consider sort of the Trump GOP, and the GOP that that you that you felt connected to you know, prior to his candidacy, and even you know what recently led you to make the decisions that you've done of of moving on from the party. Where would you see the key differences being? Well, I mean, foreign policy is a huge one. I mean, the isolationism, the America first—that was never you know the Republican Party was always about engagement in the world and America playing a leading role internationally and building alliances around the world and defending freedom and human rights and all of that, those kinds of things, um, you know, projecting American strength in the world. And, um, and I always supported that. I always supported an engaged foreign policy. And, uh, and I think that's a conservative position. Donald Trump has never been his whole life. I mean, that's the, there's very few things that have been consistent core beliefs of Donald Trump. If you look back 30, 40 years, uh, you know, backing the police, <laughs> you know, and every controversial issue is certainly one. But isolationism has been another one. He's always been that way. It, that's not an act. And so unlike so many other things uh, and, I'm, you know, that, so that's one big thing. Um, you know, the racism, the xenophobia, all of that, that's the kind of stuff that causes me to pause and question um, as far as like, was that always there among the rank and file? And he brought it out. And, um, and so uh, that, you know, that's another thing that made me very uncomfortable seeing that become much more overt among the rank and file in the party. So yeah, Ron, you know, we had Olivia try on the program. She said something similar. Obviously, she worked for the administration and she had a tipping point you gave your resignation to Governor DeSantis. I want to get into the state of Florida because like I mentioned to you before you hopped on, um, we, you know, my wife is from there. I have family in the area. My mom lives down there in, in the Orlando area. Um, what, what do you feel right now with Governor DeSantis's response, the new person that he put in charge uh, of, of COVID-19 from the medical perspective, like it, it, to the outsider that doesn't live in the state, we see what's happening with Governor DeSantis. We say, oh, that's crazy, right? But you've lived it. You resigned over it from the response. Take us through why you resigned and then present day what the governor is doing right or maybe wrong in your eyes. Yeah, well, like everybody else in March was lockdown 
you know, and we were all home and we're all watching the news every day. And, and, uh, you know, I'm watching him and I'm watching Cuomo and I'm watching Trump. And, uh, you know, cause those were kind of the three in Florida that we would see every day. And just the contrast uh, between, uh, I know after the fact, we've learned about a lot of mistakes that Cuomo made, but it certainly seemed at the time he was, you know, pretty on the ball and on top of things, comparing that to DeSantis. But DeSantis, we were, we were the first state to just have our governor go, okay, we're not doing this anymore. <laughs> you know, we went from total lockdown in March to throwing everything wide open in May uh, when, you know, everywhere else around the country, they were sort of kind of easing back into things. In Florida, he just declared victory, you know, wanted his apology and said it was all no big deal. And, and that just made me, uh, for the most part, I was just focused on Trump's response because DeSantis what, during March was fine. But then all of a sudden, DeSantis, almost like he tried to one up Trump on on recklessness with respect to COVID. So, you know, and then you had the Rebecca Jones thing where she had resigned in protest over the data. And again, I, I never took a position on that. I didn't know who to believe on that. You know, unless you're in the middle of that, you don't really know who to believe. Um, so it wasn't so much that I believed that she was a whistleblower per se. But I did believe she was somebody who was trying to get facts out and report facts. And my main objection and my reason for resigning was the way that he tried to silence her and other members of, you know, the health department by using the criminal justice system, which I felt was an inappropriate use of police power by the governor to silence a political critic. And so that was, as a, as a criminal lawyer, that hit me to my core, you know. Ron, you've taken, and it's interesting, you've taken a pretty proactive, well, proactive or a reactive position, actually, because you've moved, you've done two things from what I understand. One is you've changed party affiliation. Right. But the second one is that rather than, you know, leave the office and say, I'm done with this, which makes total sense. And we saw, we still see a fair amount of Republicans. I live in the state of Pennsylvania. Pat Toomey actually is, you know, leaving, actually is re- retiring from the Senate. Um, and that state suddenly becomes in play in 2022. And that's one attitude of, I'm just getting off this crazy train. You, however, have taken a more reactive stance of getting involved, of doing something about this, of really holding this branch or what's feeling like, just objectively speaking, a growing wave of what the GOP sentiment has become, which to be fair, wasn't always the case, but that seems to be sort of the temperature now. Ron, what sort of sparked that from you to not just walk away, but to get in the dirt and fight this? Well, I mean, I'm embarrassed to say for three years, I was like that, you know, from the time that Trump got the nomination, I was heavily involved in politics actively at the party, you know, level from 1988 until 2016. And when he got the nomination, I just dropped out. You know, I tuned out. I stopped watching the news. I just started watching sports and reading history books. And, you know, really for three years, I checked out of everything. And and because I was so disgusted and disheartened and I just thought, well, you know, four years will be over. And then when really, you know, when COVID hit, it just, like I said, just kind of forced me to pay attention again and plug back in to what was happening. And it kind of forced me to watch the news and watch Trump every day, you know, for the, give those two hour 
supposedly COVID briefings that were not really much about COVID. And just watching him for the first time for such an extended period of time in, in four years, I was just shocked. I w- it was way worse than I ever thought he was before, even worse. And so it just kind of blew me away. And so that's really what, in March, what made up my mind. And then I saw a Lincoln Project commercial, to be honest with you. You know, um, I saw those guys who I knew and respected, a lot of them had known for decades. And um, and that really had an impact on me because it, for the first time I saw, wow, there are actually people just like me, Republican, lifelong Republicans who feel the same way about Trump. I didn't know that. And then I began to wonder, well, how many of, of them are there? And so I contacted those guys and Republican Voters Against Trump, which is Bill Kristol's group, and, um, and, and, and started doing stuff for them, you know, videos, ads, billboards, and, and it just kind of gradually went into it. And then finally, ultimately, I got on Twitter in August. Yeah. And I mentioned, you know, we like accountability.gop as well. You know, Sarah Longwell and those folks are doing a great job too. But yeah. Yeah. Um, why don't you Same take group. us? Yeah. yeah, great group. I want you, why don't you take our audience through what it is you guys do for people that don't have Twitter, right? <laughs> there's, yeah. there's some out there, but take us through what your team does in terms of monitoring not only stuff from the right wing media, you know, the Fox's Newsmax's OAN, but also you guys have been doing a great job updating people on these uh, school board meetings. You know, uh, di- different encounters. I saw one in the in the state of Florida in Fort Lauderdale where, you know, the, the parent tried to fight one of the administrators. Take our audience through all of the work that you and your team are doing. Yeah, it was sort of an evolution. You know, when I got on Twitter, I got on Twitter just and I and I, I put it on my banner. I'm on here for 75 days because I swore I would never get on social media. I'm not on Facebook. And so I put on there, I'm doing this for 75 days till the election and then I'm out. And so the only thing I was doing was trying to reach out to moderate, educated Republicans like me and persuade them not to vote for Trump. That's really all I was trying to do. And I was doing that by finding some of the most extreme Trump stuff that he was saying and doing and putting it in front of them. You know, I hid from it for three years. I'm thinking they're hiding from it. I'm going to force them to see it and say, this is what you're supporting. And, and the congressmen and senators that are enabling him, these are who you're supporting. Because look, most people don't, aren't as plugged into the news as, as some of us are. And so they don't know some of this stuff. They don't see it. And so I tried to put it in their face. And by doing that, it just sort of caused me after the election, now that I'm already following the most extreme elements of the party, and then the post-election going into January 6th, And starting to watch that build and following those guys into alternative platforms. And I just started posting stuff saying this thing on, you know, it was, I started on December 19th, every day posting about January 6th saying, this is going to be bad. It's going to be huge. It's going to be violent. This is really bad because I'm reading what these guys are saying they're going to do and what they're, and I'm posting it on Twitter, showing what they're going to do. And everybody just kind of paid no attention. You know, they were just, um, you know, you're, you're overhyping this, it's overblown. The other rallies weren't that big. You know, you're just scaremongering, fearmongering. And then um, it was during that time that the two people that I work with reached out to me 
and contacted me and said, Hey, you know, we'd really like to help. And they're much better at me at research. And so, uh, and so I said, Hey, that's great. And after January 6th, I think happened and what, what I had put out there uh, came true. I think maybe I got more followers, more credibility as far as what I said happened, exactly happened. And so that's when we just decided, the three of us, that, okay, this is what we're going to do now. We're going to deep dive into these people and we're going to follow not just the influencers and the organizers, but we're going to follow these fringe candidates and groups and, and all of that. And so it just kind of led into a lot of different areas of religious extremism, you know, racial groups uh school board meetings you know the the web is and it's it's an interconnected web of evilness you know that we're immersed in every day yeah you, Ron, know, you mentioned january 6th sorry mike no no, no. Um, if as me as you talked about like since december 19th like dialed in and kind of being a prophet on this one seeing that this is where this may lead to if you were advising the january 6th commission now in terms of what to your, in your view, would best shed light as to what's going on and possibly wake all of us up to what the realities are of the extremism on the far right. What, what are some points you would offer the commission to, to, to seriously co- to consider? Well, you know, there's two different things there because the commission is more honestly backward looking in its mission as far as what has already happened. Not so much forward-looking, I don't think. They got enough on their plate dealing with what happened. And I'm more forward-looking because what I saw after January 6th was the people who are involved in organizing that. You know, your Bannons, your Russell, your uh, Charlie Kirks, your Ali Alexanders, your, you know, you you can rattle them all off. uh, um, Roger Stone. I watched those guys regroup in February and March and spin their wheels a little bit. What are we gonna do now? And they've all coalesced around one game plan really, which is we're gonna shift our focus from DC and what's going on in Washington to local government agencies. And all of their time, focus, money, attention, rallies, conferences, everything right now that they've been doing since March is geared towards targeting local governments, school boards, city commissions, county commissions, um, and most importantly, supervisors of elections and secretaries of state. That's the big plum that they're really targeting in 2022 that they don't talk about publicly because what they wanna do is these are low level positions, they're low profile, they're often nonpartisan races that nobody pays attention to, These are the gatekeepers of election integrity. They want to not only change the voting laws and make it more difficult to vote, they want to replace the people who count the votes and run the elections with rabid right-wing MAGAs. And and I I say to you, imagine how differently 2020 would have turned out if Georgia, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and uh, what's the other, Michigan, all had MAGA Republican Trumpian secretaries of state. And we needed all four of them to certify that election. What would have happened? It would have been utter chaos. Thankfully, we didn't. And their plan is to replace each one of those four people. 
and they've already, Trump's already endorsed four people to run against them. Um, Ron, I wanted to ask you, because before you hopped on the program, we were talking about the Wall Street Journal report about Facebook and the misinformation, disinformation, how Facebook has made people feel. Um, some of the, the deep dives that that Wall Street Journal team did on the company. How tough is it for you, this dichotomy of you're using your social media platform, but you're reporting on people that are spreading blatantly misinformation, disinformation. Yeah. yeah. And it's, and it, I thought about this today because we were, as we were prepping for the show, I said, I got to ask Ron this because you've accumulated over 200,000 followers. You've done a great job at times saying, I'm not going to post about this, but it's a very small crowd. For example, like the recent rally that they had to free the political protest or nonsense. Um, but so, so you've done a great job in that regard, but how tough is balancing that line of saying, I don't, really want to give this any more attention than it merits? There are people who say that they're doing what we do um, who don't do that. And, and all they're doing is gaslighting. You know, uh, I see for everything I post, I see 999 worse things that I didn't post. So this is what I try to, I've tried to explain to my followers that a lot of thought goes into that. You, what you said, it's very important to me to discredit them, to raise awareness of them, to make people aware of who they are and what they are, to try and get them on national news, to embarrass them when they do something stupid or dumb without conveying the message that they're trying to convey. So. When I watch an interview of a Michael Flynn, I'm, and I watch a 45-minute interview, and I post 45 seconds, I've filtered out the 44 minutes of stuff that he's pushing to grab the 45 seconds of stuff that's going to humiliate him. And so when people say they just knee-jerk, don't post anything from Michael Flynn. Don't post anything from Donald Trump. Well, I've just curated out. I've just sifted through hours of Donald Trump to find one minute of stuff that's going to help us. So don't come back at me with don't post anything from Trump. You know, a lot of time and thought went into what we post and it's all done for effect and it's all done for a specific reason. I'm not looking for clicks. I don't get any money. I have no money. Make no money from it. I want no money. I'm not interviewing for a job. I'm not a grifter, okay? Um, and so we're not looking for clicks. We don't put tweets out and go, you know, smash the like button if you like puppies and ice cream, you know? We're not, I've never asked anybody to retweet anything. I'm shaking okay? my head. That's not why we're we doing smash this. The like button. Ryan, that's funny. Just smash the Raise puppy. your hand if you love Joe Biden. I mean, those things just, uh, they, they drive me crazy because those right are here, monetized people. Those are people who are getting paid for clicks. And I just wish people would yeah. not do it. <laughs> so, so we're not all about that is what I'm trying to say. I love it. Let's take pause for a minute and recognize the fact that Ron, you're, you mentioned a moment ago, just you know, going through, you know, hours of content from these people um, and, le- and just bringing the most important keys, like curating. I think that's an important concept that I think we don't talk nearly about like that work you're doing 
better you than me, brother. I, <laughs> you were doing <laughs> the other ninety nine percent right there. You don't want to see it. <laughs> no, I do I do not. But thank, but thank you for, but thank you for calling attention to the fact that it's not about clicks. We, Mike and I, were texting earlier today about the click economy. Like just the fact that that's that is a key metric. The fact that that's not important to you that means a lot to, to someone like me who's, you know, very just suspicious of social media and, and some of the things that come with it for that specific purpose. Um, Ron, I want to just direct you to, you know, I know currently you've changed party affiliation, but just at your core, again, party outside for a moment, you've considered yourself a conservative in the past. I'm not sure completely how that's changed for you, but like you from a political ideology standpoint. What makes you you when you talk about your stance and your philosophy? You know, I think all of us, uh, you mentioned a few a few people, so did I, like, you know, Charlie Sykes, Tim Miller. Um, who else did you mention? Um, We've had Kim Whaley on, Amanda Carpenter. You know. all, all of us yeah. are all questioning what we believe anymore, you mm. know? Um, so it, it's a, it's a good question. It's, it's, um, I mean, there are certain core things I'm sure that we hang on to. I, I think what I have noticed is there are certain, um, common traits between the never Trumpers who have left the party. Um, in general, we are foreign policy conservatives. We are moderates when it comes to economic issues and we are liberal when it comes to social issues. And that's, that's kind of, and we're educated. Most of us are college graduates or graduate degrees. And those are the people that are leaving the party. You know, um, it's a brain drain really. And the, the Republican party is going to the lowest common denominator to be in charge. And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I, it's, um, I think all of us are, re, you know, getting on Twitter has been a huge educational experience for me because, you know, my followers are mostly liberal, you know, and mostly Democrat, although not all, but I've had to adjust my thinking, my language, and I've had a lot of help. <laughs> you know, I was getting corrected constantly just over terminology I might use or a word I might use. And Republicans, we don't get that. <laughs> from, they don't care. They don't care what you say. So, you know, I wasn't used to having to be more careful with thinking through things and thinking through other people's perspectives, you know? So I think all of us who have left the party and either become Democrats or independents are growing right now. We're evolving in our, in our, in our approach to the world and our thinking about a lot of issues. Ron, it's why we started this show. Um, I was in Florida during the pandemic, like I mentioned to you, and I was having a lot of intelligent conversations with unintelligent people. And I don't mean it to demean people necessarily. It's just, they lacked either news judgment or, you know, you and I, we can be conservatives. We can be Democrats. That's not the issue. The issue is the sky is blue. The sun is yellow. If you say the sky is white and the sun is green, we shouldn't have a conversation anymore. And, and the fact that you're bringing attention to these people that are saying sky is white, sun is green. I appreciate the work that you and your team are doing. Uh, check out Ron Filipkowski on Twitter. Follow him. He's a great follow. I'm telling you, I wake up every morning. I look for your tweets, sir, because as somebody who was a former producer of some of this, now, again, I was on the weekend shifts for Fox News, so that's where they bury the news. But, you know, I understand a little bit more of this, specifically uh, this right wing eco chamber. So I truly appreciate all the work you guys are doing. Continued success. Thank you so much for 
hopping on the podcast today with us. Appreciate it, guys. Thank you. Nicky boy, today's episode of the podcast is presented by Podgo. You know who Podgo is, Nick? Of course I do. Who's paying us to talk about this? (laughs) (laughs) That is right. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space. You always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. Apply today to become a member and immediately be connected with advertisers that fit your audience. If you got a podcast that you just started up, go to podgo.co, P-O-D-G-O.co, and be sure to add our podcast, Can We Please Talk, in the How Did You Hear About Podgo section of the application. All right. That was Ron Filipkowski. Like I mentioned, follow him on Twitter. He does a great job on Twitter, man. I, I, I follow this guy religiously because like he mentioned, right? That curation part that you mentioned to him, Nick, it is true, right? Like, am I going to sit there and watch a cyber ninjas audit on OAN about Arizona for two and a half hours? No, come on. Nobody, by the way, nobody should be watching that, but you're not going to watch that. And this guy, what he really, him and his team really do is highlight the lunacy that's happening. You know, People that are going to listen to this, and you know, you and I have been called a left-wing propaganda machine. You know we're not, right? Because we're not paid by anybody. But what's funny to me is a guy like Ron, Olivia Troy, who we've had on, Mike Emanuel, who we've had on, you know, these are people that, and again, I don't know if Mike Emanuel is Republican or not, but these are people that you look at and you go, I recognize that. I recognize that I can have conversations with that person. I can talk to them about, like he mentioned, foreign policy stuff, where they're moderate leaning on certain things. That is what I think Joe Biden ran on. I can talk to those type of Republicans and get them to work with me. The problem is there's not that many of those that Mm -hmm. exist anymore. It's starting to be inundated with people that are making little to no sense Marjorie Taylor Greene's bringing in Scooby-Doo pictures into when she has, you know, 10 minutes on the floor and I'm watching this on C-SPAN going, oh my God, <laughs> the guy, the, the guy who was making those cars the night before, you couldn't pay me enough to do that if I worked for her. But so I want to get your take real quick on, on what we talked about overall misinformation, disinformation, and, and then the great work that Ron and his team is doing. Yeah. I mean, I think the, it's just a real thing. I, you know, in the interview we talked about, you know, the, the idea of like a click economy and just, you know, who, like, what is the metric that people are shooting for? And, and, you know, and Ron talks about like, this is not his pursuit. You know, the fact that he's curating, that means someone's intentionally folks curation is, is editing. And it's something that is often lost when we talk about online journalism, when we talk about, um, you know, think pieces and all these editorials and stuff like that. This is journalism one-on-one folks. Very simple. If you look at the newspaper and it says opinion, understand that this is not in, this is not actual reporting. And what that's what that's what Ron's all about, you know, stepping away from the party, but not just stepping away, but aggressively saying that this is not the party that I remember. This is not the party that was supposed the intent of, of the Republican Party. And it's doing something about it, similar to accountability or accountability GOP. So yeah, I think it's an important point. It's just about, you know, what does it mean to actually be mindful of content, not putting stuff out without being careful as to what the implications of that are. And that's something that, as you just pointed out a moment ago, that's something that's just, that's not the case. You know, the GOP is very actively now putting out the most wildest of assertions just to just drum up enough attention. I'd argue it's because they actually, from a policy standpoint, have nothing else to offer. So this is what you do. But this is the, this is the smoke signal. This is what you do 
to raise attention to things that make absolutely no sense, be it, you know, the continued discussions of the 2020 election um, yep. or critical race theory and you know, anything that just stirs up, quite honestly, the less educated people. And when I say less educated, I don't necessarily mean whether you graduate high school, college or what have you. Are you read? Are you paying attention? Are you actually separating fact from fiction? Yep. You know, those who are choosing not to, well, that's your demographic right now. For the people that are listening that will say, what about the AOCs and Rashida Tlaibs and the stuff that yeah. the problem with that subsection of people is it is to a smaller extent. It's not as noticeable. Um, if you look at what AOC did the other day at that Met Gala, right? She spent more yeah. on that dress and more for going there. And this is Democrats problems. They trip over themselves because they can't get out of the way. You're wearing a shirt. You're wearing a dress that says tax the rich. At an event that costs what the table is two hundred fifty thousand dollars to have a table there, right? How how is that good messaging? How is that good messaging? As you're a representative for the for the House of Representatives, right? And you're a Democrat in the state of New York. Like how how is that going to get anybody on your side? There was a Saturday Night Live clip I remember a while back, um, and they 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 had a, a fake police officer on the show in the cold open that they do talking about the protesters that were on highways blocking cars. And it's like during rush hour traffic. And the guy goes, yeah, that's going to be a great job getting people on your cause as you block rush hour traffic. And it's true. Like you have to do certain things <laughs> that make sense. And Democrats miss this opportunity with messaging, right? I'm, I can't imagine if I worked for Nancy Pelosi and I saw that I would be losing my mind. I'd be like, can we please stay unified? Like they are unified. You know, the GOP are having a fight within, dude, you, you're, you're opening Pandora's box here because we could easily make this like, you know, you don't like Levitard did the 24 hour marathon show, right? Yeah, of course. I can go 24 hours on, on the flaws of democratic messaging. I won't, but that's always been the problem. And we're seeing it now. I mean, you have on one side, Joe Manchin, literally one Senator from one of the least populated, populated states in the country, along with Kristen Sinema in, in Arizona that are actually holding up any progress for the Democrats. And it's a behavior that you didn't necessarily see with Republicans. The one time that you did see a disruption was when the now, you know, the former and now deceased, um, you know, Senator John McCain came forward and voted against his party when it came to the Affordable Care Act. But that's really the only time you ever see any division within the party. Democrats right. struggle with this all the time. But I'm going to stop right here because yeah. yeah, be careful because we could easily do uh, multiple episodes on this. And we're, and we're going to have people on in the coming weeks. We're going to talk about that. We've we go. got some great episodes in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have correspondent from the Wall Street Journal who covers everything Texas. We're going to get into everything that's happening in the state of Texas again, because unfortunately, people may think we're picking on two states. We're not. A lot of news is emanating from I would love to talk about something happening in New York and it's just not happening right now. You know, what's happening with the border, what's happening with the, you know, the voting rights um, law that passed down there. You saw on, on Capitol Hill, those professors that met with Senator Cruz, if you've seen that exchange, um, what's happening with the abortion legislation. You saw the doctor that came forward. So Elizabeth uh, Findell from The Wall Street Journal is going to be joining us in the next episode. We've got Nolan McCaskill coming up from the Los Angeles Times. He's a great congressional reporter, formerly at Politico. He's going to take us in through everything that you just mentioned before, Nick, about Joe Manchin, Christian Cinema, the debt ceiling, right? All of that stuff we're going to get into with Nolan. So we've got some great episodes in the coming weeks. Speaking of great, YouTube.com. You want to watch some great video content of this show 
Nick smashing the subscribe button. Audio you know, I'm shaking my head because Ron warned us against this. That's right. He did warn us against this. He said no cat videos or pointing to say Biden won. Um, audio podcast platforms, you know us by now. Uh, check us out. Give us a five-star review and comment, please. As always, everybody, I'm Mike Leon. Willing to have a conversation with you if you give us anything less than a five-star review. I'm Nick Zaveri. We'll see you next time. Bye. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.